0: so thank you for the introduction Um, it's humbling to address a group like this because you're a very influential group of people collectively i mean if there are 200 i said 259 a second ago i think uh, now it's 260 but um, when you see the, the number at the bottom of the screen 260 participants that's really thousands and thousands of people because every one of you has a sphere of influence many times more than just the number that appears on the bottom of the screen so it's it's a privilege it's an honor and frankly it's a, it is also um, intimidating to uh, to dress to, ad- to to address a, a group like this but uh, the The good thing is I can't see anybody, I can't see the room full of people, so it makes it a little bit less uh, intimidating. And you say, why are you intimidated, don't you do this for a living? Yes, I do do this for a living, but you know what, (laughs) who do you want to be the surgeon? The doctor who waltzes into the operating room, and says, I've done this before, or the guy who says, you know what, every single time I do this, I'm in awe, and I am in awe. The idea that... Um, I mean you're educators so I'll speak to you I'll speak shop with you a little bit I don't get this, I'm going to indulge myself a little bit for a minute because I don't get a chance to do this often because uh, not every crowd relates to this but there's something about the it, it's an awe-inspiring thing when you stop and you think to yourself that what I'm what I'm about to do could have that much effect on a person. Um, think about the, the, you know when 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 you, when you have when you teach a student, you don't know which word it's going to be that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. You know they may ref- they may forget ninety nine point nine percent of the words that you told them, but there's going to be that one thing that they're going to carry with them. And they're going to carry that with them in every situation, wherever they go, in all of their interactions. And then you end up being present with them in all those situations that you don't even know about because of one thing that you don't even remember necessarily having said. So, yeah. All right. So, anyways, enough about me. Let's, Let's talk about tonight. I was asked to address the hidden potential of every single student, every single child. And uh, I guess I'll begin like this. Today is Chami asaba of the, uh, the 15th day of the saddest day of the Jewish month, of the Jewish year. And precisely because it's the saddest month. So when the moon is full and we begin to resurface, come back up from the uh, low point of Tisha B'Av. So the, uh, the light having come from the darkness is that much more pronounced. One of the things we know about the way the world works in general is that there's really only one direction. Always forward. Everything's forward. Because everything ultimately is leading us a step closer to Mashiach. So even when something feels like a setback, there's really no such thing as a setback. It's all part of the process. We know the famous story from the Gemara about Rabbi Akiva and uh, how the Rebbe interpreted that story. There is a story at the end of the in Makais where uh, the sages saw the Besamigdash in ruins and they saw foxes coming out of the Kedush HaKadoshim and uh, Rabbi Akiva laughed when the other sage- sages cried. They asked him, why are you laughing? He said, why are you crying? They said, because the place where only the holiest person in, in, in the world was able to enter on the holiest day of the year and, and now foxes are are wandering around there. So Rabbi Akiva says, well, you know, I'm laughing because Yeshua and Navi said he's making the prophecy of Zechariah dependent upon the prophecy of Uriah. Zechariah prophesied about when there'll be rebuilding. Uriah prophesied that that, that Zion means, means Jerusalem, the Besamigdash, would be plowed like a field. So now that I see that that's, That uh, prophecy came true. I see how much that the rebuilding prophecy comes true. So the Rebbe asks a few questions, but actually the Rebbe asks no less than eight questions about this gemara. But one of the questions is, what? Rabbi Akiva didn't know that there's such a thing as rebuilding? He didn't know about Mashiach until he saw it for himself? So the Rebbe explains, no, Rabbi Akiva knew, but he didn't know the extent he didn't know the extent to which the destruction had taken place. Of course, he'd heard about the destruction. But when he saw how destroyed it was, then he was happy because he realized commensurate to the depth of the destruction that would be proportionately how much greater the redemption would be. I don't mean subjectively that you know when you sit in the dark long enough, then you come out into the light, the light feels brighter. I don't mean that feels brighter. I mean that the lower the destruction is, actually the greater the the, uh, the rebuilding becomes, objectively speaking. How do you understand that? So the Rebbe says, What was the prophecy about the destruction? That Zion will be plowed like a field. What's plowing? There's an old story about a Jew back in Russia. He's sent to a gulag, to a prison camp. His wife, his poor wife, writes him a letter. She says, It's time to plant the potatoes and the ground is too hard. I can't plow the ground in order to plant the potatoes. And the ox died. What do I do? So he writes back to his wife. He's, fr- he's in the gulag, and he writes to his wife and says, don't touch the yard. That's where I hid the weapons and the ammunition. Of course, KGB reads all the mail coming out of the gulag. So as soon as that letter arrives, a bunch of soldiers pull up in a truck. They jump out, and they start tearing apart the yard looking for the the, the weapons and the ammunition. They tear up the whole yard until sunset, until it gets dark. They don't find anything, obviously. And they get back in their truck, they drive away. So the wife writes back to the husband. She says, the soldiers just came by and they tore apart the entire yard. So he writes her back and he says, now plant the potatoes. When you see an act of destruction, how do you know it's destruction? You look at a snapshot of it, you only look at it at this moment, it looks like everything is being torn apart. But plowing, plowing isn't destructive, it's constructive. That's why it's one of the 39 prohibited forms of labor. All the pro- prohibited forms of labor are, are, are uh, productive. It looks destructive. It's not destructive. It's productive. And what's more, the more you plow, the more growth there will be. So that's what Rabbi Akiva saw. He said, I knew it was destroyed. I didn't realize how destroyed. When you plow this much, the growth is going to be proportionately that much greater. So we know that everything that happens is only moving forward. And certainly the completely unpredicted events of the past school year are only bringing us closer to Mashiach. And specifically in terms of Chinuch, this is only leading to a, a, a better era in Chinuch. This is only leading to better schools and better teachers and better students in, in every way. There's no question. There's no question that this can only be productive in every single way. And, and the only question is, at a time like this, when we have this you know, powerful group assembled, Is there maybe one thing that we can pinpoint and that we can name? We say, okay, this is at least one way. I mean, there are many, many ways. But can we identify one specific way how clearly uh, we're in a better position today than we were six months ago? So here's what I'll tell you. The Gemara at the end of Tainus talks about how Chabisha uh, Asa was a big Yomtev. One of the biggest Yomtevim in the Jewish year. And what would happen on that day? They had a custom that the daughters of Jerusalem would go out into the vineyards and they would look for a husband. And how would they try to catch a husband? It depends. It depends on who the girl was. So it tells us that <laughs> The beautiful ones, I laugh because, you know, if somebody heard about this going on somewhere, you know, but uh, it happened in the Gemara, so it's all kosher. Anyways, the, the beautiful ones would say, marry me for my beauty. Makes sense. And then the ones who had yichus, pedigree, they said, marry me for my, my pedigree. Somebody saying, please explain how we're in a better position. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do with God's help. That's what I'm going to do. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. That is the whole point. That's precisely why do you think I said that whole uh, setup? Because that's what I want to do. But uh, now I've got to tell you the whole story about the B'nai Shalaim Shalayim and the uh, Chmisha of, And then trust me, if I, at the end, if I don't tell you how we're in a better position than we were six months ago, I'll give you all your money back. Okay. So the beautiful ones used to say, marry me for my beauty. And the ones with Yichos used to say, Marry me for my family background, because a wife is in order to give you children, and children are going to be dependent upon, you know, the the way the children turn out. There's nature, there's nurture, but a lot of it depends on, you know, family background. And then what about those poor girls who didn't have either of these milas? So, uh, in fact, it calls them the ugly ones. That's how the Gemada refers to them. So the ugly ones, as if such a thing could exist, used to say, marry me l'shem shemayim. As long as you adorn me with jewels. So it's a funny gemara. For a lot of reasons. But the Rebbe learns this whole uh, piece of Aggadah according to Chassidus. What's it talking about? It's talking about us. Each one of us. Who are the Benais Yedushalayim? The souls. And the Shama is a daughter, is feminine. It comes from Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. And they go out into the vineyards. They go out into the world. And they look for a husband to be Mekadish them. That the Abish there is Mekadish, the Jewish people, like an ish, is Mekadish an Isha. And they're looking for a way to get Hashem's attention. So there are those who have yeifi. What's Yaifi? Spiritual yeifi. Spiritual Yefi is ava ve They have love of Hashem, they have awe of Hashem, and they say, Hashem, choose us because we have this spiritual beauty. That's uh, the tzaddikim. Then there are those who say, look, we don't have spiritual beauty. We don't have ava, we don't have yira. But here's what we have. We have yichus." We are descended from Avram, Yitzchak V'yankiv, Sarah, Sar, R- R- Rivka, Rachel, and Leia. And what does that mean that we have Yichus. Like it talks about in Tanya, the Ava Miseteris, The Ava Miseteris, the hidden love, that we get is a Yerusha from the Aves. So a uh, he might not have real Ava V'yira, like a Tzaddik, but he has Ava Miseteris. and he can tap into that, and it's enough Ava to get him to do, it's not real Ava Vayira, but it's enough to get the job done, to do the Maiseh, And that's why those who have this they say, marry us for children, because the purpose of marriage is children. What's children? Iker told they say the main, what are children? Behaviors. That's what a is able to give Hashem. So he says to Hashem, choose me because I'm able to be my my Ava and I can give you I can give you actions. And then there's the ugly ones. The ugly ones. An ugly soul. How can there be an ugly soul? An ugly neshama? You ever heard of an ugly neshama? There's no such thing as an ugly neshama. But what does it mean? It means they're not tzaddikim. They don't have Ava They're not Bainanim. They, they, they can't be Ma'orah the Ava So what do they say to Hashem? They say, marry me L'Shem Shemayim. What does it mean to tell Hashem to do something L'Shem Shemayim? It means, Do it for your sake, Hashem. Not for our sake. Do it for your sake. Choose me for your sake, Hashem. As long as you adorn me with with jewels. What does it mean to adorn me with jewels? You know, there's the expression, Do you love me because I'm beautiful? Or am I beautiful because you love me? I might not be a tzaddik, I might not even be a benini, but Hashem, choose me for your sake, and in your choosing me, you're adorning me with jewels. You'll make me beautiful. When you love me, I become beautiful. And the Rebbe mentions another story in the Gemara to, to bring out what this really means. It says the story, Gemara in Nadarim, about a guy who made a nether not to marry a particular girl. Why? They were nudging him to marry a particular girl. He didn't want to marry her, so he made a nether. I'm not marrying this girl. Now you know the way that it works. If somebody makes a nether, you have to be shoyul You have to go ask a chacham to release you from the nether. You're supposed to. And how is the chacham supposed to get you out of the nether? The only way to release you from the nether is to have to find a, what's called a Pesach. A Pesach means something that if you had known it at the time you made the nether, you would never make the nether. So this guy made a nadir that he's not going to marry this particular girl. And he went to Rabbi Yishmuel. And what did Rabbi Ishmoel do? Rabbi Yishmuel found this girl and he gave her a makeover. Now I'm not saying Rabbi Yishmuel, he like picked out the color palette or maybe he just paid for it. Maybe he just knew who to call, you know. But, uh, you know, it says he got her clothes, he got her jewelry, he he adorned her, he gave her a makeover. Rabbi Shemuel gave gave this girl a makeover. So after he gave her the makeover, he says to the guy, he says, Let me ask you a question. Bring her in. They brought in the girl, he says, Is this the girl you made another you're not going to marry? And the guy looks at this girl, he says, No, not her. Now it was the same girl. But now he sees her in a totally different light. Right? That's the Pesach. That's how to release the nether. If she would have looked like that at the time I made the nether, I would never make such a nether. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know who I was dealing with. That's not the end of the story, though. The end of the story is, it says at that moment, Rabbi Yishmuel cried. It says, He cried. And he says, All Jewish girls are beautiful. But anios, poverty, menavlosan, tarnishes their beauty. The Rebbe takes this story to explain what does it mean the beautiful ones, the ones with yichos, the quote-unquote ugly ones, there's no such thing as an ugly neshama. So you have a tzaddik, you have a bainini, and you have a what? You have a what? Not a tzaddik, not a bainini, not yet a bainini. But don't call her ugly. You want to know why? Because whatever situation that she's in, this anios, the fact that she came into Elam Gashmi, gashmi, and that there's a Gullus for 2,000 years, this anios, the circumstantial poverty, this is what's making her look not beautiful, like the tzaddik or even like the Bainini. But it's not her. Kol noise. nois—they're all beautiful. You just need Rabbi Ishmael to come and give her a makeover. And then the guy's going to look and he's going to see. Hold on a second. This is who I was talking about. I didn't realize who I was talking about. The Ruziner has a vort, Rabbi Yisrael Ruziner. About Shaduchim uh, kosha Kakriyas Yamsuf. And he asks, why is it Kosha Kakriyas Yamsuf? Why Dafka, that comparison? So he says like this When the Abishta made the Yam, he made a condition with the Yam that in 2,448 years, the Jews are going to come out of Mitzrayim and you're going to have to split for them. And the Yam agreed. But then came the day when the Yidin came out of Mitzrayim. He didn't split. So the malach came and asks, why, why are you not splitting? He says, because I didn't see the people I'm supposed to split for. And they realized that when he was asked, 2,448 years ago, to split for the Jews, they showed him the neshamas, what the yidin looked like then, before the world was created. And now, it's 2,448 years later, he's seeing the shamas in bodies, and not just in bodies, but as they were, as they were coming out of Mitzrayim, after they were at Memtes Tuma. And like the medrash says, Halalu <laughs> Halalu that the Jews in Mitzrayim were even involved in Zora. So the Yam saw them. He says, This isn't what I, this isn't, this isn't who I recognize. So the Rosh Hashanah says the same thing with the shidduch. The forty days before you're conceived, they say bas Laplaini. That's a neshama sees a neshama, and they say when you meet her, you know, marry her. But then they come down into this world. That's not who I saw up there. So there's a hush of being able to recognize that even those who are not tzaddikim and not benanim, even those who don't have yeifi and don't have yichus, even those who are so-called ugly, can't be. That they're also beautiful. But in order to see their beauty, their inner beauty, that's being hidden right now because of being in this world, because of the, the hardships of galus. To be able to see past that, you have to see the neshama. So here's what I want to tell you. You don't need chassidus to tell you how important it is to see a child's potential. You don't need chassidus for that. Lahavdil, you could have a secular group of educators and they could talk about the importance of seeing the potential in a child. There's a thing they call the Rosenthal effect. Why do they call it that? Because there was a Jewish psychologist called Rosenthal. If you heard about it, the Rosenthal effect, what did he do? His theory was basically that if you would tell teachers to have higher expectations of students, the the students would rise to those expectations. And they did a whole experiment in a school at the beginning of the year. They gave out tests to all the kids and then they randomly picked certain kids and they would tell the teachers, these kids are going to blossom this year. And then what happened was self-fulfilling prophecy. The ones the teachers were told had greater potential, by the end of the year, they actually tested higher. Right, so the, the, you don't have to know Chassidus <laughs> in order to know that, 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 that when you see greater potential on a child, they rise to that potential. What does Chassidus give us? It gives us the awareness that not only does a child have greater potential, then we realize, but that they have infinite potential, because the potential really is coming from the neshama, the neshama is ain't Sof, infinite. And therefore, a chesidische mechanech means not just one who sees potential in children, because again, you don't need chesidists for that. Siddish Shemechaneches is one who sees the neshama in the student. And that this neshama came to this world to do something unique and to make a contribution that no other neshama ever made. And that this neshama has infinite powers and that that this neshama is beautiful. Who ever heard of an ugly neshama? And whether they're a tzaddik or a benini or or neither of those two. So-called ugly ones. Really, no such thing as ugly. Aniasmanavlos. The circumstances of Islabshus of, and of in Aguf and being in an Elam Haza Khumri and being in that that makes them look ugly, but they're not ugly. So here's what I want you to think about. When a child is born. we look at them in the crib, and not only do we love them, we're proud of them. It's a funny thing. What are you proud of? They never did anything. They can't do anything. And yet we're proud of them. Is that silly? And the truth is, no, it's not silly. It's, it's actually, we're very close to a, to a truth When we look at a baby and we're proud of a baby, we're actually closer to the truth than than we are many times when the child gets older. The truth is, (laughs) Hashem says about every single Jew, I'm proud of you. Not just unconditional love, that we know about. Unconditional pride. Hashem is proud of every Jew. Well, proud of what? Maybe if they'll be frum, he'll be proud of them. They'll do mitzvahs, he'll be proud. No, no, no. That's that's a separate issue. That's on top of that. What we're talking about is, (laughs) he's proud of them just because of who they are. So you could have a child who will go on and do great things. You could be proud of their accomplishments, but that's a separate issue. Then there's just being proud of the child for who they are. Unconditionally. That unconditional pride means to see them as a neshama, to realize that they are the maise yoday of Hashem, and that they have unconditional worth, infinite worth, intrinsic worth. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to prove it. They don't have to accomplish anything to be worthy of it. They are automatically, completely valid and worthy. And when they're babies, we see that. When they're babies, we see that. And we recognize it. And we don't say, you know, when my kid will will grow up and do something, then maybe I'll be proud of him. No, 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 we don't say that because when we look at them as babies, whether it's intuitive or it's subconscious, we don't even realize we're doing it, but we're seeing them closer to the way we should be seeing them all the time, which is a neshama that doesn't have to do anything to earn validation. Now what happens? They start to grow up. Do you know studies were done that children's self esteem plummets around five years old? And there are different theories why, but most theories generally are that it has to do with school. So you think about it when you're a baby, everyone's proud of you just for being you. Then you go to school, and now all of a sudden you have to prove your worth. There are tests. And you compare yourself with others. And now, somebody's telling you whether you're good or you're not good. Or how good you are. So what happened? From the time they were babies, we saw them as infinitely worthy, intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy. In other words, we saw them as souls. And then at some point, all of a sudden, that worth became conditional. Prove it to me. You know, earn your worth. Prove to me that I should be proud of you. And like I said, you know, a group of secular educators could could tell you the same thing. What makes this an idea that's unique to Chassidus is that if you know a little bit of Chassidus, you realize just how absurd it is to ever place conditions on somebody's infinite value. Because all you have to do is realize that you're looking at a neshama, and they don't have to do anything to prove their worth in your eyes. When you say Mayda'ani in the morning, one of the, the interpretations of Rabba Munasacha is the Hashem has a Munna in you. Well, and what's the proof he has a Munna in you? He woke you up, he gave you your soul again today. So the fact that anybody is walking this earth the Abishter sent their soul to this world again for another day means that the Abishter already has validated this person. They don't need to get it from a teacher or from from from, 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 a, from a parent or from from peers. they're already validated they're infinitely valid, unconditionally valid, intrinsically valid So here's Here's what I want to share with you, and this is maybe why you will regret taking somebody from outside of the, <laughs> the world of Chinuch as a, as, as a keynote speaker. Something wonderful has happened in the past few months. A real plowing. A real plowing where, I mean, I've heard people decrying it, people are... So upset about what we lost over the past few months, how much ground we lost. First of all, we don't lose anything. We always only gain. And even when we lose, it's only to gain. If we lost some of the conditioning, some of the routine over the past few months, see it as plowing. The children are fresh slates again. We have an opportunity now to set back the clock to a certain extent and to have them as they were when they were babies. You know what I'm saying? That instead of their, I mean, we all know as parents and as educators that that there's a certain self-concept that a child takes on because of schoolization because of their role in school, whether it's the the, the social role or their their scholastic role, but there's a certain identity they begin to see themselves as that's imposed, it's artificial, it's coming from the outside, placed upon them. They didn't have it when they were babies. When they were babies, they they were infinitely worthy and intrinsically worthy and unconditionally worthy. So we have a certain opportunity now where children have been away from that situation. Where maybe it's going to be possible to get a fresh start. And by a fresh start, what I mean is to realize that every single student is beautiful and has infinite potential already. I don't, I don't have to make them beautiful. They are beautiful. I have to bring out the beauty they already have. And that means I don't have to make them into something. They don't have to fit a mold. The school is not here to make them be something else other than what they already are. The school is here to serve them to bring out their infinite potential that they already possess. The Rebbe spoke about, and I'm going to wrap up in uh, in two minutes here, the difference between between the shliach and the askan. The Rebbe spoke at the Kinnos Shluchim about shluchim and askonim. What's the difference? The Rebbe gave the the example of a school. That uh, an askan has a he has a school. And in order to function he needs nishamas. He needs some people to be you know, to send their kids as students. He needs some people to be donors, to be supporters. But he needs people in order to serve the, you know, the institution. That's the ask What's the shlich? The shlich is the exact opposite. The shlich has neshamas. Comes to a place and he was given these souls to be a steward to these souls. And then he looks at these souls and he says, what could I do for them that will help them to maximize their potential? Do I need to give them a school? Okay, so he creates a school. And the school is there to serve the neshamas. So exact opposite. The askan has a school and he needs neshamas to serve the school. The Shliyat has neshamas. He creates a school in order to serve the neshamas. Children are not there so that schools can function and run. That's, That's an absurd notion. I don't think anyone believes that schools are there to serve children so that they can bring out their own inner potential. And when I say to bring out their own inner potential, let me be very clear, that doesn't mean to impose a certain vision for success upon them, or to assume a certain teaching method has to be right for all students, or the same criteria for success are applicable to all students. No, that's It's not the purpose of the school. The school is there to serve the neshama. The neshama already was delivered to you perfect. Intrinsically worthy, absolutely worthy, infinitely worthy. Beautiful. And it's the job of the, it's the holy job of the Mechanech to recognize that and to do everything possible to facilitate that inner beauty coming out. So here's what I'll leave you with. It's easy to talk. It's harder to do, right? Easier said than done. I don't have a plan for you. I'm not a classroom teacher and I'm not an administrator. I don't even know how you guys do it. I personally think it's the hardest job in the world. And I'm in awe of the people who do it. So I don't have a plan for you. But I can tell you this, there's an opportunity right now that didn't exist half a year ago. An opportunity to realign, to recalibrate our whole way of looking at the role of our duty, or uh, what we're providing. And if we ever thought before that we were there to make children fit into some standard, we were given an opportunity, we were forced into a situation where we're going to have to rethink that. There was a lot of plowing. A lot of plowing was done. A lot of de schoolification, if that's the word, was done in the past three, four months. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's an opportunity for us and for the students to get back to their inner beauty and for us to get back to our true role as facilitators of them bringing that out from the inside out, not, Im- not imposing something from the outside. So, uh, look, you have a whole kindness here. You have some of the greatest minds some of the most important, most influential people, and most unknown also, I'll say that at the same time, some of the most disproportionately unknown people as far as the influence that the people at this kinnis have. Okay, the, 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 the woman power, not the man power, the woman power here is inordinate. And the ability to come up with a plan from this one kinnis to make this year the greatest year, incomparably the greatest year of education that's ever t- taken place in the history of the Jewish people, that potential is totally within reach to emerge just from what's going to happen at this Kinnis. So you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> I, g- I gave you an idea. Go ahead, run with it.